Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Historical Materialism, a new series from the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. Few figures stand as prominently in Marxist theory and history as Vladimir Lenin, the revolutionary who played a pivotal role in one of the most important events in world history, has received reverence, damnation, and everything in between. But much of that response depends on deep misunderstandings of both what he thought and what he did. This misunderstanding was deep enough that even he took notice of it at several points, remarking that readers tended to take his theories out of their context and misunderstand the underlying points. Understanding Lenin, then, will not just mean rereading his work, but understanding the world Lenin was working in, the what's impossible to understand without considering the where's, when's, and why's. To that effect, Alan Chandro, my guest today, has stepped in with a book that seeks to do just that. Lenin and the Logic of Hegemony is a sustained attempt to reread Lenin in light of Gramsci's oft-ignored remark that Lenin was one of his biggest influences in developing his own theories of hegemony. The book spends the first couple chapters contextualizing Lenin by looking at some of his contemporaries, particularly Kautsky, Bernstein, and Plekhanov, before turning to Lenin's own works and reading through them slowly and meticulously. The result is a study that works its way through Lenin's writings all the way from the 1890s to the end of his life in the 1920s, giving us the ability to see Lenin's development of ontological and epistemological themes that run throughout his life and work. While Chandro is not always easy to read, the book has a number of crucial insights for political organizers and will repay serious effort. Many books have been written on Lenin over the years, but few have bothered to study his work so meticulously and thoroughly. Alan Chandro is a professor of political theory, previously at Laurentian University, and is currently a visiting professor at York. He is on the editorial board for Science and Society. Alan Chandro, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thanks very much, Stephen. Good to be here. Yes. Yeah, so to kick things off, I always like to have guests introduce themselves. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about your background and what your work and research tends to focus on? Okay. Up until very recently, I was a uh, professor of uh, political science at Laurentian University. Uh, the uh, ups and downs of capitalism got me, though, that uh, recently that university has been the first in Canada to go through essentially bankruptcy protection, which was a maneuver for uh, the administration to uh, get 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 around the collective agreement and get rid of about 40% of his staff. I, I, I guess I'm emeritus there now, and I'm a visiting scholar at York University. Uh, I, and uh, I... I work on Marxist political theory, political philosophy. Not quite sure what the right, still not sure what the right term is there. Yeah, a lot of different angles to go in at. Um, But to kick off this conversation, so at the beginning of your book, 
You note that Gramsci credits Lenin with the development of the concept of hegemony, something that has generally baffled scholars of both thinkers. So as a starting point, can you explain what you were trying to do by taking this remark by Gramsci seriously as a way of going back and rereading Lenin? Sure. First, perhaps the easiest thing is to start off with what it's not. It's not a declaration that I'm somehow trying to find the the roots of Gramsci's conception of hegemony, or at least to explain what Gramsci's conception of hegemony really is. It's rather to 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 kind of um, one to get people to think seriously about Lenin as a thinker uh, rather than simply a practitioner of Marxism. He's widely respected, at least amongst Marxists, as a practitioner of Marxism. But um, say, for example, uh, in, in, in uh, talking about uh, Gramsci's reference to Lenin as, and, and his reference to Lenin as making a contribution, I guess, to metaphysics, I'd like to think anti-metaphysics, to epistemology through the conception of hegemony. The the editors of the English translation, uh, uh, Quentin Orr and Jeffrey Noel Smith, suggest that they they express their bafflement at this, and they treat it as though Lenin was, you know, there's something Lenin did, and Gramsci's not now going to provide the theory of. But Gramsci's actual statements would seem to suggest that there's more there. Secondly, what I wanted to do by the reference to... So I'm looking at Lenin's conception of hegemony. I'm concerned to see what there might be there. And while I make some comparisons here and there with Gramsci, there's no attempt for that to be systematic, and there's no claim that uh, Lenin Lenin uh, prefigured uh, Gramsci's conception of hegemony. Although you, you know th- there are connections, and I point out some of them, and maybe we'll uh, get on to those. Secondly, um. A lot of the discussion of Lenin, why Lenin has been treated as a practitioner, is in my view because the, the lens through which his uh, his writings and his activity have been viewed has been a uh, has been the lens of his largely through the lens of his opponent's way of framing. Questions. That's perhaps most evident with um, the, the, the famous, infamous claim in what is to be done that the um, socialist consciousness must be brought from without uh, into the spontaneous working class movement, which uh, his critics at the time and subsequent critics, opponents, and almost all readers of, at least almost all non-communist readers of Lenin, have read through something like Marx's third thesis on Feuerbach, the idea that uh, um, uh, 
the materialist doctrine that men are the products of circumstances and therefore changed men are the product of changed circumstances ignores that men must change circumstances and necessarily arrives at dividing society into two, educators superior to society and the educated, and so would seem to sanction a rather elitist relation of Marxist intellectuals to uh, to workers. Like that's how the problem in the quotation is set up uh, by his opponents, economists at the time, later on Mensheviks, and that's passed into the bulk of uh, activist and scholarly literature. But that's not at all as I show how Lenin posed. Uh, the issues posed in those terms, what Lenin writes, it seems some combination of dogmatic and, um, and, and, and scattered and improvisatory. If you understand, once I think you understand it in o- those terms, and as I started studying th- that work, what is to be done in particular, and that controversy in particular, I wasn't expecting this, but I came to the conclusion that it couldn't be understood without reference to not not so much Gramsci's, but Lenin's conception of proletarian hegemony in the bourgeois democratic revolution. Um, Gramsci's popularization, I'm not sure that's the right word, but I'll use it. Uh, popularization of the of of the of the concept has lent that some kind of currency. Thinking the the reference to Gramsci, uh, I hope enables me to kind of decenter discussion of Lenin's um, work from the terms imposed by his activist and scholarly adversaries, and so get a closer look at how he actually thought. Yeah, excellent. Um, So turning to the concept of hegemony, one thing I found interesting about your book is that hegemony is often, at least in some popular accounts, thought of as being an abstract, superstructural, ethereal phenomena above and beyond material conditions. But your account of a Leninist hegemony has the has it much more deeply intertwined with the political and economic coordinates of workers and organizers and their everyday experiences. Can you give us some introductory remarks about this shift? How rereading hegemony in Lenin's work gives you a hegemony that is much more concrete and not something that simply obscures one's conditions, but is much more a part of them. Sure, shift or shift back, um, because it seems to me that the, the you, like you you're quite right. The way in which hegemony is uh, is discussed for the most part, and this is certainly through liberal readings of 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 Gramsci, Norberto Bobbio might be the the a key figure there, but also amongst many. Uh, academic Marxists, um, yeah, hegemony is ideas. And one can certainly find that in Gramsci. Hegemony is is contrasted with dictatorship. 
ideas, the space of democratic debate versus the realm of force. Um, but what one, but that's, I think, only a part of um, Gramsci's treatment of hegemony. The, thus, for example, you, he, he will w- refer to hegemony as encompassing both coercion and consent. And if we think about the, you know, what the term means, it, it, it's a word for leadership. And uh, it, if one contrasts um, uh, consent and coercion, if one contrasts hegemony with dictatorship, you could say one's contrasting the, the, the statesman or the popular leader with uh, with the dictator, with the, the armed coup or something like that. But it's also the case that political leaders, even those who seek to win over the consent of, of uh, their followers or neutrals or even opponents, um, will indeed must in the real world um, use means other than simply um, simply a, a battle of ideas. Um, so I guess I want to want to say if you if if you view it in terms of the manuf- you know hegemony is the manufacture of consent. I guess what I would want to say is very often it turns out to be the manufacture of acquiescence rather than consent. And if one looks at Gramsci's conception of hegemony, one of the things that's there that's key and that and, and that we I think we can in fact trace back to Lenin is the idea that um, the ordinary consciousness of people is a contradictory consciousness. They have ideas that would lead them to cooperate with. Um, their rulers, but they also have ideas that usually implicitly, usually not fully worked out, are ideas of resistance and perhaps of revolt and revolution. Now, typically it's the former rather than the latter that would be dominant, um, but and that would have to do with the context in which people are thinking. What, what What's the practical course of action? I may be sick of, unhappy with my life. I may not like living in the flat I'm living in. I may not um, uh, know what to do with with my kids, but I've got to do something with them in the... In, in in the short run. So I need to, there is pressure to cooperate with uh, the institutions of the society. So there's a kind of pressure there. There's the, there's the kind of thing that, the, what, what does Marx call it in the first volume of Capital? Something like the, the, the dull or the silent compulsion of economic relations, right? So not exactly coercion, although it has its coercive component, not exactly uh, consent, although one's acquiescing in it. So 
Anybody who considers political leadership has to consider using or restructuring the institutions that that shaped people's um, um, people's ideas and actions. Now, part of how you do that is appeal to people's ideas. If you want to appeal to their subordinate um, ideas. Uh, in in their consciousness, but part of it also is to see if you can't or can't restructure or lead them in restructuring social institutions, practices, conventions that um, that reinforce those set of ideas rather than others. So hegemony, the struggle for hegemony, the struggle for ideas is indeed grounded in material realities. But I think it's worth going back a little further than that. I mean, in in fact, um, one of the arguments I make is that hegemony was a problem that presented itself to the earliest Russian Marxists in trying to orient themselves in these new circumstances. And a lot of their intellectual and political battles uh, involved figuring out what that would mean, what the, the hegemony or leadership of the proletariat in a democratic, bourgeois democratic revolution would amount to. And it was not just Lenin who had um, a take on that. It, it was also his adversaries, uh, notably the Mensheviks. And I suggest, and here I'm following uh, in some significant measure, the Menshevik scholar Theodor Dan, his Origins of Bolshevism, a uh, very interesting book, is actually available in, in 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 English, but th- there were two o- opposing uh, conceptions of hegemony, and I I, I I suggest in the book that uh, the Menshevik conception of hegemony is probably more focused on um, on hegemony as ideas, as hegemony as a as a feature of proletarian consciousness, and they they developed a form of political practice that was geared towards setting up situations in which the workers would directly confront um, the bourgeois or the capitalists, and in that direct confrontation, develop their class consciousness, whereas. Um, and, and and that to a certain extent involved the kind of prefiguration of a, of a, of a, of a struggle and a, a kind of and or telos of the struggle that may not have been the most dominant thing in the in the uh, present. With Lenin, on the other hand, what was crucial was establishing an alliance, 
including within the working class, but extending beyond it, of, of those who were in fact fighting already the forces that be. So it had a strategic and it had a structural aspect to it, in, ad- in addition to the battle over ideas. Yeah, um, moving into the kind of historical contextualizing that you do for the first couple chapters, you turn to Karl Kautsky, and you note that his theory and practice have received much criticism, both from Lenin and others. But you argue that many criticisms of him have missed the mark by misunderstanding his own understanding of socialist consciousness. And better appreciating the limits of his thought means understanding his theory in the context is it was developed in. Can you unpack his orientation for us? I'll try. That's that's about the longest chapter. In, yeah, it's in, a big one in, yeah. in the book. So we'll see what we can do. Look, the, the reference to Kautsky in the way I was in in the way the the, the research project developed stems from the the problem I mentioned earlier with Lenin's What is to be Done and the thesis, as I call it, the thesis of of consciousness from without. Lenin refers to a passage from uh, Kautsky on that subject. And, um, and, 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 And so I thought I should go back and look at that. Often Kautsky is contrasted as a mechanic, you know, the, the, the materialism in the third thesis on Feuerbach, the one that sees men as the products of circumstances and changed men as the products of changed circumstances, but does not appreciate that men change circumstances um, and consequently adopts a, a, a kind of elitist attitude. Kautsky is widely regarded as a uh, as an exemplar of 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 that kind of thing, uh, which is charac- which might be characterized as mechanical materialism. Now, I I suggest that that now th- there's a couple of ways of understanding that kind of criticism, and and I would say one of them we could characterize as, as ontological. So people aren't really capable of inventiveness through their practice, right? We are just really sophisticated machines or something like that. Uh, and that something like that is how Kautsky, Plekhanov, um, much of Second International Marxism, including importantly the Mensheviks, are are characterized. So it isn't a matter of debating what politics Kautskyan or Luxembourgist, uh, Plekhanov or Trotsky, um, uh, uh, what. The Mensheviks or Council Communism. What it, it isn't a matter of of debating what course of action practically. Rather, it's a debate about philosophical ontology. Right? These people can't understand 
changing things. And so it's a matter, and, and, and changing things becomes a matter of adopting a particular understanding of, of practice. What it doesn't involve is a debate over what are the circumstances under which we are or aren't acting. And um, it seems to me that if one looks, as I spend a lot of time at various points in the thesis doing, if one looks at Kautsky, if one looks at Kukanov, if one looks at the Mensheviks, that understanding of them just doesn't hold up. Um, the debate ought not to be practice or revolutionary practice um, versus fatalism is a term that's often used by um, Kautsky's critics in, in, in particular. It's um, rather how do they analyze the situations in which one acts. Now, interestingly, Lenin, of course, and famously, has developed a criticism of Kautsky, which can broadly be characterized under the same term. Kautsky was a kind of mechanical, that's to say, not dialectical uh, materialist. Um, but here, I think, the critique is an epistemological critique rather than an ontological critique, so that some, at least, of Kautsky's earlier works, I would say especially his works on the agrarian question, um, but some also of his strategic works, and, and Lenin suggests up to roughly 1909 or so. Sometimes he suggests up till the First World War, Kautsky had been a Marxist, right? But he was incapable of adapting because what Marxism is, is it's not, it certainly involves an understanding of a, if not a telos, at least the direction in historical movement, one to which we, uh, the, 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 the working class movement ought to bend its efforts. But it also involves, because it's a, 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 a road we must travel on. It's not, it's not a pre-planned road. In, in fact, the road is a road of class struggle. Um, and that means one's adversaries can, uh, one's, one's adversaries are also capable of practice, capable of action, capable of innovation, and they can adopt courses of action, which, which we might not have expected. And indeed, they can use us or some of our mistakes or some of, some of uh, the actions that worked in the past and bend them to their own purposes. And if that's the case, if that's the road forward, then it's not simply... Um, you know, our, 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 uh, our intentions or our end orientation that's important in consciousness is our ability to adapt, rethink, question, so on and so forth. And that's what 
on Lenin's reading, I think, and I think correctly, is not there with Kautsky. Now, how I put that, I guess what I would add to that, or how I would attempt to flesh that kind of perspective out, is that I, I read Kautsky's historical account not as simply mechanical. He understands that workers are involved in practice and economic practice and political practice. And through the development of capitalism, socialism, socialization of the productive forces, the, um, the, the workers come to be able to form unions, to combat the workers more effectively for economic demands, for political demands, and come to pose um, broader questions. Now, where consciousness needs to be brought from without is is it's a consciousness of that process, or rather, it's a theoretical consciousness of that process. It's an understanding of that process as a whole. So what, in fact, the intellectuals contribute, bring from uh, the outside is a clarification of the practice of the working class movement already. But in terms of, you know, so one, there's an understanding of practice there, and there is a prospect before the movement of more unity, more struggle, greater um greater ambitions and the possibility of conquering and establishing socialism. And there again, Kautsky certainly saw that happening through the conquest of a parliamentary majority and the subordination of bureaucracy in the first instance to the parliament, but he also saw that as setting up a situation in which you work, in in which the institutions, conventions, and understandings of that society on its way to socialism, but still bound up with the institutions and practices of a capitalist society. There's, there, there's a prospect of its further transformation. So there is a revolutionary perspective there. The problem is that it doesn't account for if you want, the, the reaction of its enemies and the necessity of, um, of, 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 of adapting to those. And I think one of the reasons, or the reason that that isn't questioned, a reason at any rate, is that the assumptions of Kautskyan Orthodox Marxism, this kind of march of history that unifies the working class and makes the most advanced, organized, conscious workers in the largest institutions involved in the party and so on, their consciousness is a consciousness and a practice that all the other backward segments or or less advanced segments of the working class and and even the peasants who, if they haven't yet been dispossessed, will be. That's a consciousness to which they were coming. So in a sense, the more advanced sections of the working class 
German Social Democratic Party represent those backward segments. And Kautsky sees in the practice of German social democracy increasing votes for the party, increasing uh, membership in the social democratic trade unions, subscriptions to the party newspapers, uh, membership in youth organizations, women's organizations, those are all increasing. So that's the empirical evidence, right? But what he doesn't see is that some of the backward segments, and I, you know, there are there are a couple of instances in in German history. Red Wednesday in Hamburg, which I uh, uh, I, I, I I cite Richard Evans' work on that, um, and 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 the Moabite disturbances in in 1910, in which working class demonstrations eventuate in riots, which can be understood and were understood by Kautsky as the the lumpen proletariat, the kind of backward, uh, you know, showing their failure to discipline and organize themselves. And what we need to do is make them more organized. Those are understood as backwards. They aren't any ass, any part of them, a reaction to the slowness, the limitations, the perhaps self-satisfaction of the more advanced sections, right? In other words, Kautsky doesn't treat as possibly um, possibly problematic incipient divisions within the working class and more broadly popular movement. So the practical basis on which he might um, challenge the optimism of, of um, you know, the hopeful optimism of, of his progressive uh, march of history is, 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 is kind of undercut. So uh, it, Again, once again, it's it's not that there's no conception of practice there. It's not that there's no um, no understanding of of revolutionary practice. What there isn't is an ability to address the particular problem the 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 problems that arise out of the um, particular forms that struggles take, and that's all the more significant because all of Kautsky's works up until the First World War were addressed to the revisionist challenge to the orthodox Marxism of the German Social Democratic Party, represented uh, first and foremost by Edward Bernstein's revisionism. And what what Bernstein does is it doesn't just say reforms are okay. That's all we need. He said su- he suggests that the movement of capitalist society is ever greater diversity. I refer to him as the book as the first post-Marxist, because this emphasis on diversity, individuality, variety, and so on is something that I, I think the, the 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 two kinds of critics of of, of of Marxism have in 
common for Bernstein, like socialism was like organizing liberalism, right? So he gives Kautsky the cue to pick up on all this diversity and difference. Kautsky doesn't. And I think it's that that failure of self-reflexiveness in his Marxism that constitutes the limit of that Marxism. Yeah. So moving past uh, Kautsky, uh, you turn to pre-revolutionary Russia, particularly the work of George Plekhanov. And it's here that a number of themes around hegemony will start to be developed, particularly around the relationship between the working classes, their political consciousness, and the role of vanguard intellectuals and activists in the midst of it all. So much of the theoretical developments, it should be noted, were developed in response to what you were earlier talking about with the ambiguous coordinates of the emerging Russian capitalism, which in many ways didn't fit neatly into Marx's theoretical accounts since its political and economic structures had very different paths of development than places where he wrote and analyzed, like Germany, France, and England. So can you give us a quick sense of the terrain here so as to set the stage for Lenin's interventions? Sure. Now, the early debates around Marxism in Russia need to be understood in the context of of an engagement a practical and theoretical engagement with Russian populism. Thus, Marx's own interest in Russia, and he became quite interested in it towards the end of his life, and probably most famous in Marx's writings would be his letter to Vera Zazulich. Zazulich was actually a a comrade of Plekhanov. They had been um, activists in a populist organization and recently, this is the early 1880s, had converted to Marxism, but they were still asking themselves questions prompted by populism. And that is, do we have to, you know, we we understand that that capitalism is the way forward for Russia. It will bring Advance, but does that mean that we have to wait for centuries for capitalism to work its way through our backward country and the and the working class can have a revolution? Now, Marx made uh, made a reply, which um, w- which was largely designed not to discourage anybody from engaging in anti-Czarist political activity. He, su- he suggested that the, the Russian village commune, which the populists had looked to as an, an, an exemplar and possible foundation for socialism, um, th- that might wither away but un- un- under the pressure of capitalism, but it existed in the, in the historical context of an already developed capitalism and that being the case, it could be rescued and preserved, but only if deleterious influences, i.e. Tsarism, were removed. Marx didn't identify any forces inside Russia that would actually accomplish that task. It was populist intellectuals who were then 
laying siege to the Tsar using terrorism, amongst other things, Lenin's older brother among them. But but it wasn't like Mar- Marx was not an, a, an activist on the ground in Russia. He didn't leave us with much in the way of an understanding of um, of the political forces that would be involved in a Russian um, revolution. This is where George Plekhanov comes in. Um, and he argues against a populism that suggests that capitalism um, cannot develop in Russia. Russia is very different. What we need then is a revolution that would be at once a socialist revolution and a revolution of the peasantry. And Plekhanov is dismissive of the revolutionary capacity of the peasantry. He suggests, and he and, and he has a conception of the development of capitalism that's that's very similar to Kautsky's. Uh, uh, kind of unilinear historical development, the the uh, material and organizational bases of, uh, of of a possible future socialism develop at the same pace as its subjective or conscious aspects, the material bases through the economic development of capitalism and the subjective basis through the, the development of the working class and through its struggles. But what we're faced with now, for Plekhanov, it wasn't, it, it wasn't necessarily that capitalism would arise internally to Russia. It could be imported um, by the government seeing the need to compete with the advanced technologies of the West. But there's kind of an, 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 an historical logic that would eventuate in the development of capitalism through one or another of those, of those means. So people who want socialism then need, need to turn to the working class. and more actually than the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie was still the russian bourgeoisie made its profits as much or more from ministerial favors and so on and so forth and so was bound up with the feudal or semi-feudal relations of 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 russia and little able to free itself. So the idea of, 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 of the proletariat leading, be, being the, almost by default the force that could lead a bourgeois revolution uh, was central to his thought. Now, Plagana was writing in the, in the mid-1880s. Um, those ideas stayed at the center of his thought probably throughout his uh, career. Lenin enters the scene 10, 10 years later. The kind of populism that he's addressing is a little bit different. Plekhanov had been contending 
with a revolutionary populism. We need to overthrow the Tsar in order to free up the communes, right? Um, what one had when Lenin entered the scene was a more developed capitalism. That capitalism was um, developing was clear, but if one is to maintain the the working class uh, movement as a central political institution or a central political force uh, aimed at transforming czarist autocracy in a democratic direction, the idea that capitalism might have been the product of um, of um, the state importing capital suggests well well then the what the state decides if the state can decide to do that surely the state can decide to support various reform or semi-socialist or populist ventures and you had what was called a, a legal populism uh, had become uh, more prominent by that time and um, and it was that that Lenin was argue, arguing against for him uh, and and he, Lenin adopted a perspective that's a, probably closer to Kautsky's than than uh, than Plakanos. He, he, in his works of the 1890s, culminating in the development of capitalism in Russia in 1898, he, he portrayed a, a, a capitalism that was every, everywhere growing from the grassroots up and that its movement was not external. It was, just, it, it was just springing from everywhere. So this idea of somehow getting around it or somehow using the state to get around it um was just was just not on the I think problem we can really... for lenin whereas where whereas for kautsky the the problem was in a sense getting capitalism off the ground the bourgeoisie was still tied up with the with the feudal state for lenin the proletariat was the was the vanguard of this vast process that involved, you know, agricultural laborers and even even peasants who were not yet expropriated. But the 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 problem here is how do you conceive of that leadership? And and the leadership was kind of like, uh, a, a, as in the Kautskyan case, the the advanced proletariat of Massive industrial complexes in in uh, Moscow, Saint Petersburg, so on and so forth. That 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 was kind of like the 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 telos, the end that everybody else would would become. So they rep, but if they were representing everyone else, then why why are we not talking about a socialist revolution? Yeah, I can maybe step in here. Um, you spend a lot of time, so you kind of set up some of the first things I wanted to ask about Lenin, but I want to turn to his 1902 text, What is to be Done?, which occupies quite a bit of space for obvious reasons for a couple chapters in this book. 
So yep. you note that this book has received a fair number of critiques from both Marxists and non-Marxists alike for this uh, sort of vanguardist elitism, particularly yep. in the idea that consciousness of the workers must be delivered from without by an intellectually elite revolutionary vanguard. And this version of Leninism is then seen as a sort of primordial seed for movements like Stalinism. But you argue it relies on some severe misunderstandings of yeah. the key terms and dynamics Lenin discusses, particularly with the relationship between Vanguard and the broader working class and the use of theory to help maintain a more militantly antagonistic consciousness against uh, attempts at assimilation. So can you unpack this a bit, uh, bringing yeah. us more first into Lenin's I, First, work? I need to note a couple of fa- features of the context here. Yeah. This is 1902. The Bernstein controversy in German social de- democracy, and really it extended throughout all the social democratic or Marxist parties in Europe and really across the world, a, a challenge to orthodox Marxism on the basis of a kind of progressive reformism, right? That had exploded also in Russian social democracy. That's crucial background to the the turn of the century debate. There was also a a crisis specific to um, Russian Marxism, the Russian workers' movement, associated with uh, a a movement uh, or, or trend of thought dubbed economist. And in in its purest form, this was roughly the idea after um, uh, a strike wave of the strike waves of the mid 1890s had been disrupted by police attacks, brutality of the employers, so on and so forth, and the um, the social democratic or Marxist activists had been scooped up by the political police, and um, and and what organizations were left were um, run by some rather inexperienced people. Certain level of de- demoralization occurred. The thought was, let let's leave politics. You you know. Let's struggle for the workers' wages and working conditions. Let's leave politics to the li- to the liberals, right? Small steps, reforms will lead uh, further. That, of course, challenged the perspective of proletarian hegemony, right? And even in and 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 it merged with the revisionist controversy so the idea lenin's recourse to the idea that consciousness in the form of marxist theory would have to be imported into the working class movement arose in that kind of polemical context and Unlike Kautsky, he made the claim, and and this was as a basis for the idea that we need to organize a party. It needs to be tight, 
but it needs to be informed by theory and it needs to be informed by a theory that's capable of analyzing our specific circumstances and not simply applying general formulas to them. Uh, so we need to, in order to do that, you need a pretty significant mastery of theory. We need that in order, one, to fight the political police, two, not not to allow our activists to become demoralized when there's a bad turn, and three, to lead not just the working class movement, because we're claiming hegemony, to lead all of the diverse sources of resistance to Tsarism. Okay, Lenin's formulation of the relationship between the con- consciousness and the spontaneous working class movement differed from Kautsky's and was more radical than Kautsky's um, in that he he did not think that um, although consciousness may come from outside, nonetheless it would be congruent with a spontaneous movement. He didn't think only that. He thought, he talked about the need to combat spontaneity, which suggests that there's a resistance of the workers to Marxist or socialist theory, so on and so forth. And that, of course, is, uh, that, of course, would seem to suggest the scenario of the third thesis on Feuerbach and the and 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 the educator must be educated, and you have an elite above um, the workers is applicable. But I think uh, per- perhaps the most straightforward way of of um, of explaining that, of understanding it, is that Lenin Lenin dis- distinguished two different distinctions. That between base and superstructure, so economic movement on the one hand and ideas on the other, um, it from a distinction between consciousness and spontaneity. The spontaneous, and, and that was the Marxist intellectuals and, and workers too, um, and the spontaneous movement. What is the spontaneous movement? Now, as the movement of the working class, based on its position in um, in capitalist production, so exploited, subject to uh, the the brutalities of the capitalist workplace, uh, denied dignity, and so forth. So there's resistance there, but it what what there is also and this qualifies as spontaneous in the sense that it's outside the control of the conscious, and that is the ideological influence of the bourgeoisie over the spontaneous working class movement. That, too, is spontaneous. So the spontaneous movement is contains contradictory tendencies. Um, and 
in a sense, Lenin, Lenin says at various points, the spontaneous movement is the embryo out of which consciousness grows. So you want to nurture that. But on the other hand, one needs to combat spontaneity. And what that, I think, means is one, one needs to combat the tendency whereby workers take on the, 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 the spectacles provided for them in the daily press of the bourgeoisie to construe their exploitation as, I don't know, God's curse or a a temporary thing we have to get through until we get older and we can afford our own house or a a thousand different themes to reconcile one's sufferings, hardships, exploitations, oppressions with roughly the world as it is or as it can be made without fundamental challenge to the authorities. Now, this can take any number of forms, right? Okay, what the initial economists and what even other other forms, oh, before I get on to that, what I will say is what in, in distinguishing those sets of the, those two kinds of distinctions, what Lenin is doing is an, a tendency in Orthodox classical Marxism was to identify the agency you know, of one class with kind of the spirit of the age, right? Um, it's the bourgeoisie's time. No, it's the working class's time. The context of hegemony is a context in, in which there's contention for leadership. Um, so the superstructure isn't just dominated by one set of ideas, bourgeois ideas. And it's worth noting at this time, along with the advent of economism, you had the emergence of of a, of, of a kind of bur- liberal bourgeois opposition to czarism, which uh, Lenin thought threatened to use working class militancy as a kind of stage army to threaten the czar and get get uh, a kind of constitutional um, concessions. Okay, so you then have a threat to the the the, the uh, claim to ambition to proletarian hegemony or leadership you have the possibility of bourgeois leadership but that isn't the, the form that takes requires use of the th- popular movements as a threat to czarism it's a kind of bargaining chip right so forms of working class militancy that might be in favor of higher wages, let's go out on strike, or even saying we want um, political rights so that we can better organize to get higher wages, right? Um, or, 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 or those can play into the uh, strategy of bourgeois. Um, hegemony. 
a, a bourgeois-led revolution. So that needs to be combated. So part of what constitutes consciousness is an understanding of that. So yes, we're fighting for a classless society, ultimately an end to exploitation, so on and so forth. The end is there, but what's important is forging the road. And the road isn't just paved for us. It needs to, if you want, always be cut out of the forest that stands in our way. The problem is the forest is moving. It's like the forest in in Macbeth. It it doesn't stay still. It resists. It fights back. And so you always need to adapt your consciousness. If I can maybe step in, you're kind of alluding to another question I had on what is to be done. You're talking about this kind of dynamism uh, within the political coordinates, and you bring up particularly the question of freedom and the various uses and abuses it has endured through a number of different political debates. And you show how its flexibility as a term allows it to slide around, leading to a sometimes deliberate muddying of the waters. And more specifically, you see Lenin finding it uh, sometimes used to stifle debate, even within left political parties, which can lead to defeats down the road. Can you maybe kind of connect this to the questions around freedom that Lenin was also wrestling with and what is to be done? I mean, this is a kind of criticism that's also caught on and become kind of enduring. The first chapter of What is to be Done is entitled Dogmatism and Freedom of Criticism. Now, Lenin borrows the terms from his uh, from his critics who called themselves the adherents of Bernstein called themselves the, the, the critical, right? So freedom of criticism contains an ambiguity in it. But the, the, the charge against Lenin, Plekhanov, and company was that they were dogmatists and they weren't open to freedom of criticism and that one can only build the party through freedom of criticism. Therefore, we should kind of get together. Lenin, Lenin's argument, and the, the analysis gets uh, kind of, complex, so I can't go through all of it, but um, Lenin Lenin attempted to turn the argument around. Um, And this, what he, and and I think one one of his starting points was, one, an acknowledgement that everyone in the progressive socialist and democratic movements agreed with constitutional uh, rights to freedom of speech and criticism, right? That, that he said, um, wasn't in, or he implied, what wasn't in question. But what he found problematic, puzzling, was if, his, if the critics thought that their point of view was right, what, why were they arguing for freedom of criticism, i.e. for the different views to coexist rather than uh, for the replacement of the wrong view with the 
right view. And he su- the suggestion is that there's a kind of demagogy involved there. And it, it seems to me, although I, I, I don't go into this in the, in the book, it seems to me it's a kind of demagogy that's not, that one finds in some left movements. Thus, for example, um, I, I think the Sanders movement has been criticized for not allowing centrist Democrats a voice in it. The Labour Party, the Labour Party in Britain under Corbyn, has been criticized for not allowing um, a, a, a voice to um, centrists or even right-wing uh, labor people or a sufficient voice or something like that. In other words, the Russian Orthodox Marxists, Sanders, Corbyn, various left-wing movements are treated as though they're the state, right? In other words, you can't organize your view alone without hear, hearing us on the inside, right? Um, and that makes you dogmatic. It's kind of, and in substance, what Lenin does is he links the point of the, the question of freedom of criticism or freedom of speech, question of freedom of association. And here, the issue of freedom, the context of is the irreconcilable antagonism of class interests under capitalism, right? So, and that implies, that I probably should have said before, is at the core of what Lenin as a Marxist understand socialist consciousness to be. Um, Okay, let's take this from a little bit different angle. Like, what Lenin's argument about hegemony is concerned with is establishing the political independence of the working class movement. And that would involve kind of drawing a line of demarcation between who's on our side and who, although they might also be opponents of czarism, who belongs in another camp, whether bourgeois, peasant, religious minorities, or whatever. So in order to um, establish that independence, one needs to be able to distinguish one's point of view from that of others. And I think what Lenin thought he was dealing with in the context of the revisionist crisis and the economist crisis and so on and so forth here, were people who who were making the claim, oh, we're all on the same side, really. We're all in favor of, of, of socialism, even if we don't think it's, some of us don't think it goes through class struggle and some of us do. Uh, let's sit down and and sort ourselves out. So, and what Lenin was saying is, okay, let's do the sorting. Then, what is your what, what is your point of view? Because we need to be able to figure out whether we can act in a coherent fashion 
together, or in order to do that, we need to distinguish ourselves from you. And you're not giving us substantive reason to think that we might be able to act together. You're making a broad claim about freedom of speech or freedom of criticism and kind of intimating that anybody who doesn't yield to that claim is acting in an authoritarian fashion. And doing that is rather demagogic when what you're refusing to do is actually engage with the substance of the issue. And in some ways, the substance of the issue is the Marxist claim that in a capitalist society, there is an irreconcilable antagonism of interests between different classes. And of course, the Bernsinian revisionists, although they would distinguish different classes, thought precisely that those interests could be reconciled, right? Well, by raising the issue of freedom of, of, of criticism and making that front and center without engaging in the, the issue of, a, of, of the substantive differences, Lenin treated that as a kind of demagogic, and he treated it as a kind of demagogic way of undermining, because it prevented drawingness what might be necessary lines of demarcation, it prevented the or short-circuited the kind of discussions that would be necessary to to draw those lines of demarcation, uh, and 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 so and 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 in that sense, the call for freedom was in fact, I guess, undermining the freedom of association of. Uh, some groups. Lenin leaves it, you know, if, if you're not in, if you don't have to be in the same party, or, or, or I should say perhaps my, my take on Lenin is the implication of his argument is nobody's silencing you. You can take, you can make arguments against us. As a matter of fact, we are far more fiercely repressed by the Tsarist government than you are. Right, and then you're complaining to us as uh, opponents of freedom of speech and authoritarians, and so on. In fact, if you speak from where you are, you can make the same criticisms from out there. Stop interfering with our discussion. Yeah, yeah. Moving along, uh, you alluded to this earlier, but you spend a lot of time on the Bolshevik and Menshevik debate which has yeah. a number of contours. But to kind of lead into this discussion, you highlight two uh, aspects of this and then tie them together. You've got the consciousness of the workers on one hand and party structures on the other. And essentially, you seem to see the consciousness of the workers, their awareness of their situation, as well as their sense of agency or capacity to change it, is tied to questions of organizational structure, as I read you. Can you unpack this element for us? Sure. Well, try. Um, let me begin with consciousness and practice. You, you're right. I did allude to the, the, the different sense of hegemony and the different sense of consciousness as between Mensheviks and Bolsheviks earlier on. The 
And I guess if, if we distinguish two aspects of, of consciousness, as I did earlier, the idea of intentionality or consciousness's direction toward an end to be accomplished or attained on the one hand, and consciousness as reflexive adjustment to changing circumstances. Anybody who has a sense of consciousness is going to have some sense of both of those. But I guess what I would say is uh, in the Menshevik political practice, the intentionality or telos is primary and practice is understood as kind of prefiguring or expressing in embryo that end. And um, whereas, although there is an ambition in Lenin, I don't want to, in, in, in Lenin's conception of consciousness, when Lenin talks about socialist consciousness or communist consciousness or social democratic consciousness, it's he never, and I think that this is even true of state and revolution, he never talks about what socialism will look like, right? Or what communism will look like. Um, he talks about what one needs to do to adjust to, to deal with the circumstances of, of the day. And so he often talks about what's, what's changed, what's new about these circumstances, what we missed beforehand. So the reflexive aspect is crucial. And consequently, the idea of change and adaptation. So if that's, if that's how you, un, if, if you understand consciousness in those terms, what you need in terms of an organization is probably one that's centralized in at least this uh, minimal sense that has authority to enforce decisions and has an authority to organize discussions and enforce uh, the decisions that result from those discussions. So that when one changes one's analysis, one can act on the changed circumstances, or perhaps they're not changed, perhaps one's made a mistake. In order to find out whether one's made a mistake or not, one needs to be able to act in relatively organized, cohesive fashion. So the idea of, of, uh, consciousness as kind of developing a scientific an research program, really, um, tends to support a relatively centralized organ organization, or an organized, by centralized, I mean an organization capable of wielding authority, understanding that democracy is also a form of authority. If one makes the ultimate end and the prefiguration of it central, then the idea of expressing that and, um, well, to, to a certain extent, it um, coincides with or reprises 
that Bernsteinian idea of socialism as organizing liberalism. You want all kinds of diversity. Um, and here I think the idea of, of practice, I, th- I, th- I think I mentioned the, 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 the Menshevik practice of setting up uh, scenarios in which the workers can confront the capitalists directly and kind of demonstrate outside their, their meetings and things like that so that there, there's a sense of, 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 uh, of the concrete as kind of uh, confronting tangibly uh, the struggle and so embodying the possible solidarity of workers which would be part of the end and their uh, assertion of their independence from the capitalists and their opposition to them, which would be part of the end to be attained, that, that, that's given tangible form. And so uh, what matters in an organization is something that would allow that expression and experimentation and the diversity involved in that. So it's something in which uh, centralization, or I should say an an authoritative um, organization would not be the central thing, but rather one that was more liberal. Um, Yeah, Yeah, moving Along from that, um, one area I found particularly interesting throughout the book, or one theme, is the way struggle often needs to not only win terrain, but to reshape it in new ways and new forms. The danger for much working class organizing is that it will seed the shape of the territory, the terms of the debate, and the form struggle takes to bourgeois pathways of movement when what is needed is for organizers to allow new forms of struggle and solidarity to take place so as to keep the struggle from succumbing to the traps and dead ends set by reformists, liberals, and capitalists. Can you unpack this aspect of hegemonic struggle here? Well, in in the book, that appears centrally in relation to the idea of the Soviets, which were forms of organization that were invented by the workers in the spontaneous course of their struggles. And that led, and and one of the things that Lenin thought was, or perhaps the thing that Lenin thought was crucial about that, is this is a form of organization that was accessible to everyone, certainly to all the working people, by which he did not mean only working class people. He also meant white collar workers, uh, petty bourgeoisie, peasant soldiers, so on and so forth. In other words, and and he thought that that was essential because it was a, an, an organization in which, starting perhaps as a strike committee, but through the course of that struggle, taking on roles that were governmental, it could ta- it it could um, it could serve as, if properly led, uh, the embryo of a new state, what he would call the revolutionary democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry. 
And this was a form, although nobody had said, let's get all, let, let's get all the people together as a way of leading everyone in a revolution. It had occurred spontaneously in the course of proletarian solutions to practical problems, but it, it had provided uh, a forum and an example uh, that allowed political space for plebeians, proletarians, peasants, and so on, to engage in political life. And it seemed, and 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 Lenin, Lenin himself used the used the term uh, political space to, um, to to give an image of what was happening. Now, the czarist regime also was constrained through the 1905 revolution to allow the emergence of, of parliaments, dumas, they were called. And Lenin certainly used those once the, or was in favor of the use of that political space. Um, as it was all that was available. And it, it was actually kind of important to him because now hegemony wasn't just a battle of ideas and it wasn't, it, it, it certainly did include the emergence of new institutions that uh, provided uh, new opportunities and possibilities for um, uh, working people to engage in, in politics. Um, and develop their capacities through that, um, but where that's, but through that, we've we see the emergence of hegemony as an alliance of workers and peasants. The leader and a, a key respect in which the workers lead the peasants and 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 bring them into a political sphere, either directly or by way of example that can be reproduced in the countryside, in peasant committees, so on and so forth, is providing that political space. But after the Soviets are crushed in 1906 or something, and the peasant committees are crushed, the way in which a the the workers' party can reach the peasants is through the parliament, and Lenin very much valued that, reduced as it was, and less important than large scale strike movements or revolts of the of the peasantry and so on, um, because that was a way really the way, because one of the weaknesses of the Bolsheviks party was that it was very weakly implanted in the countryside, right? So part of what's involved in, 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 in a revolution is to engage people in politics. And I, I would say crucially here, it's not just in debating about politics. It's not just politics and debating about what kind of laws or rules we have. It's also and this is the function of the Soviets, in engaging people in the administration of the decisions taken by the political organs like the Soviets. 
Yeah, moving right along and turning to Lenin's wartime writing and thinking, the most central text of this period uh, is generally seen as his 1917 State and Revolution. And often commentators see this period as representative of a break with Lenin's pre-war thinking. But as I read you, you see Lenin expanding upon many of his earlier ideas that you've already alluded to and pushing against the idea of a Leninist authoritarianism uh, developing here. Instead, you see him encouraging, as you've been saying, a polymorphous movement of different actors coming in for different reasons, and class solidarity would develop through struggle as the central antagonisms of capitalism are forced in those struggles to come to the surface and become much more apparent. Can you unpack this development here? Two points. Yes. Um, If one looks at people have wanted to claim that one finds uh, an emphasis on revolutionary subjectivity post-1914 in Lenin, um, whereas whereas it didn't exist prior to that, or uh, one has a, 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 a that one finds an emphasis on multiple subjectivity post 1914 but not before uh, another way is uh, uh, another way that people claim to find is that um, post 1914 one has a sense of the subject that's um, kind of rooted in concrete circumstances but not before. Uh, and, and kind of one of the more interesting ones is that um, some people claim that um, there's no, there is a sense in Lenin after 1914, after he's read Hegel, and, and, um, that theory needs to take account of the very specific concrete circumstances and not before. My, my, my discussion of Lenin up to this, up to 1914, up to the outbreak of the war. Uh, I, and, and I think I've, I, I think in terms of understanding the agency of the working class, understanding the agency, not just of the working class, but also of the peasantry, um, coming through the appreciation of the spontaneity of the working class movement in inventing the Soviets and contributing concretely to to fleshing out proletarian hegemony and consequently teaching the party um, and Lenin himself subject situated and uh, I think also you, you, you'll find although I haven't been able to discuss it here, I, I claim in the book that in terms of uh, concrete or the theorization of particular circumstances, one finds that one can find all of that stuff prior to uh, 1914. So yeah, I don't, I don't claim that it's just a continuity. But there what's crucial is Lenin's analysis of imperialism, the outbreak of an imperialist war. What I would say is that allows Lenin to bring forward a lot of the themes that he had developed pre-First World War and 
paint them on a larger canvas. And indeed, some of the some of the features that he had supposed were specific to the um, character of a bourgeois democratic revolution by contrast with um, a, a proletarian socialist revolution uh, actually are imported into his understanding of a socialist revolution. And here I would say the idea of the Soviets resurfaces in state and revolution, as you would point out. But there again, although they are certainly proletarian institutions in the sense that they arise out of the experience and circumstances of the working class, they're proletarian precisely in the sense that they're they're open. Um to anyone. And from the point of view of, spont- of of workers, peasants, soldiers acting spontaneously, part of what spontaneity might mean then is that I don't know whether you, my purported leaders, think of me as part of the working class or not. So we cast our nets. There are institutions that cast our nets broadly that cut down all of the conventions of bourgeois society that would lead people to doubt their own ability to to participate in politics, to participate in ruling and making decisions and carrying out those decisions of politics. But, But so ruling isn't just enforcing the interests of the working class understood in a narrow corporate sense. One of the things I very much like about Gramsci is that his contrast with hegemony is not economics, it's corporate, having corporate interests. So narrow interests. So part of what the leadership of the proletariat is, is to have the peasants also take things in hand and through that uh, and the exploited nationalities and so on. So the idea of concrete circumstances, diversity, multiple subjectivity is crucial. um, So I think what becomes clearer with imperialism and with state and revolution is that what's involved in hegemony is ruling and learning to rule. And rather than, and and I I, I try to suggest that rather than a kind of conventional understanding of Lenin, whereby there's an, this absolute certainty, one of the one of absolute certainty about the end of 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 uh, of the struggle and the final victory of socialism. And we know that, and we have an almost religious faith in that, um, inspiring it. It seems to me that part of what part of what's involved uh, here is a sense that to rule, you need to understand that you may 
make mistakes. And that indeed, you will make mistakes. Yeah, if I can step in and just kind of ask a question that jumps right off of this. Uh, In the last chapter on Lenin, in the wake of the October Revolution, you find Lenin struggling with the process of trying to build a new classless society, a task which, in spite of the revolution's success, remains enormous, as the conditions of the pre-revolutionary society in many ways still cast this shadow over a revolutionary period, meaning certain social structures and forms of consciousness remain. And the key word in this late chapter for you seems to be courage, since the workers, in spite of their victory, struggle to find it in order to start building a new society. So can you tell us a bit about the challenges Lenin was encountering at this late period in his life? Yeah, I I mean, one one of the things that jumped out, out at me in reading Lenin is everyone talks about consciousness in Lenin. And throughout the the revolutionary years, you you find references to the courage of the proletariat almost as frequently as references to consciousness. And I, I think what Lenin means there is not just the physical courage needed to get on the barricades and withstand hails of bullets and go out into the field where you don't know where death might be stalking you. I, I, I think it refers also to the moral courage to take part in politics without any certainty of winning and without any certainty even of being right. Indeed, even that you are not making a mistake that might be regarded as a crime, executing an innocent hostage or or, 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 or treating, treating someone as a, as, as a landlord who isn't, or, or, or those sorts of things are inevitable in revolutionary transformations. Um, and they have to be done. And I think the idea of, and, and so in a sense, the idea of courage becomes part of what's meant by consciousness or the kind of consciousness that Lenin hopes to encourage in the working class movement and more broadly in the uh, in the working people. Um, and, I, and I think there's a, a couple of things that, that enhance the importance of that. One, we don't and can't have, like we have all kinds of ideas. We have them from Marx. We have them from the documents of the German Social Democratic Party. Now we have them from the experience of various countries and a, a, a lot of Marx. We, we have all kinds of ideas about what we might like to implement in society. But guess what? We're going to have to implement them with a whole bunch of other people. And we're going to have to implement them under circumstances that we don't fully know and about which we might have mistakes. And we have to rely on, we we will encounter one way or or another the perspectives of people who who we haven't heard from because the institutions that we're operating through and that we're still operating through even after an initial conquest of power 
because people's voices are, are, are silenced or held back by that. So um, we can't change everything at once in accordance with the blueprint um, because that involves everyone changing and everyone can't change everything all at once. So we will need to live with the imprint of bourgeois social relations and institutions, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. We will maybe even, we will have to live with, because we may not know how to operate factories or algorithms or the, the the technology of production right away. We may, we we may need to re- rely on the experience of people who have little or no sympathy with the transformations that we're trying to affect, and may indeed try to undermine them. And that sets us up with some difficult choices, and it sets us up with some choices that are not obvious, that, that, that have no obvious answer, about which there may be deep disagreements. And so we have to have the courage to face those. And the second feature that enhances the problematic nature of this is that this isn't just a debate about, this is a debate that involves the use of state power as as much as possible. One would like that to be a state which is in process of withering away, i.e. that its forcible aspects kind of um, wither into the community of workers so that it turns into something like the fourth force of public opinion or something like that. Um, but we're using force against people and we might be wrong and that's kind of scary and for a lot of reasons some but some of which have to do with the reign of bourgeois hegemony people would rather not to do that they have to overcome that reluctance they and they have to have the courage to um the courage to act on merely relative knowledge, which may turn out to be wrong. So yeah, courage is actually, I think, quite central. And it's not central to, I I would argue, because if, if one understands hegemony as a situation in which there are competing hegemonies, and if one understands that there's no absolute desperate, hopeless situation for the bourgeoisie. It will always try to invent a way forward under the circumstances, which involves recasting its hegemony and rejigging the institutions in which bourgeois social relations are, I don't know, organized and experienced. There's always going. There's always going to be that struggle, not just in relatively backward countries like a Russia or a Cuba or a China, but in any socialist revolution. Yeah, yeah. Pulling us to the 
end of the book, in the final chapter, you look at a number of different theorists to understand the possible changes in material conditions that organizers and activists today are going to have to wrestle with. While this could easily be a whole new book in its own right, I'm wondering if you could give us some closing remarks on how this reworked theory of hegemony, as well as this reworked reading of Lenin, might help organizers and activists think more critically about how to operate within the material coordinates of our present moment, a century after Lenin, for all forms of emancipation. Well, you're right. That could be another, that, that 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 could be another book. Um, but uh, I, I I guess when I was finishing up the book, and maybe for a couple of years afterwards, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about we need a new vision or we need a new utopia. Right. That, that that's what we need in order to pull the left together. And I guess what I would say is. That's exactly what we don't need, which is not to say we don't need um, references to what um, this or that uh, aspect of a socialist society might look like. But we have tons of those, right? And they will be coming. What we shouldn't do is conceive conceive our unity as depending upon agreement on some kind of uh, vision. Unity is going to be built out of struggles. And I guess one thing thing that I I, I, I would add, it seems to me in terms of thinking of the unity of the working class movement or popular movements, um, it has become common to think of that. And here people are emphasizing um, activism, activity, uh, courage, even um, using th- to think that unity as a kind of subject. And throughout the book, I I, su- I suggest that the metaphor of a subject for the unity of a, of a movement needs to be displaced or or at least complemented the idea of a community. Another way of putting this uh, uh, might be to say um, the kind of consensus we need is a a kind of overlapping consensus. I'm kind of shamefacedly borrowing that term from John Rawls. That is to say a consensus in which there is no one thing that everyone agrees upon, except perhaps the fact that we're in the struggle over things that we're now practically seeking to accomplish uh, together. And it's kind of building that, um, it's through building that, that uh, that unity will come. And to a certain extent, the idea of a, of a new vision um, kind of tends to distract us from, um, from the need to attend to the specifics of the concrete struggles that face us today. So I guess what I'm saying is that um, in in terms of the the two aspects of consciousness or self-consciousness that I distinguished earlier, intentionality and reflexiveness, that perhaps what we need is um, more emphasis on reflexiveness 
in our understanding of a reality. And, 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 and I guess I would say, by the way, the fact that Lenin's emphasis was firmly on the concrete circumstances is, is not, I think, to be understood as merely an opportunistic pragmatism, but rather as involving a, a rather deep sense that the, that the struggles of today will grow into and are growing into um, a, a, revolu- a, a socialist revolution, a socialist transformation of society. Yeah, well, that brings us through uh, most of the whole book. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about a book. I don't know whether it will be a book or will a series of essays proceeding roughly under the, uh, under the title Lenin Turns East. And that is seeing, and, and this is maybe a way of thinking of uh, Lenin as relevant now. Like I did an interview with a, 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 a an Iranian labor uh, journal a couple of years ago, and they asked me whether I thought uh, revolution was possible. And I, uh, the, I'm not satisfied. I, I said revolution is inevitable. What I think I should have said is revolution is ongoing. We just don't know how to recognize it because we're expecting something that isn't shaped by the circumstances of a Cuba, of a Vietnam, of a China, of an Eritrea, and so on and so forth. Revolution is taking place largely in the third world. And towards the end of his life, and even before that, Lenin had turned towards uh, that movement and, and, and it suggested that socialist revolutions will take different forms than we, we have ever expected. And I guess I want to explore that. Yeah, I could see how that would work as kind of in a, a spiritual sequel to this one. So, uh, Alan Chandro, thank you so much for being with us. My, it's been my pleasure.